Today on episode number 230 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Peter Kaufman shares about teaching with compassion, an educator's oath to teaching from the heart. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome to the show Peter Kaufman. He's a professor of sociology at the State University of New York at New Paltz since 1999. He regularly teaches Introduction to Sociology, Sociology Theory, Social Interaction, Education and Society, and Senior Seminar. Peter's work has appeared in journals such as Research in Higher Education, The Sociological Quarterly, Symbolic Interaction, Sociological Forum, Teaching Sociology, and the Journal of Sport and Social Issues. Recently, Peter co-authored his first book, Teaching with Compassion, an Educator's Oath to Teach from the Heart, Roman and Littlefield. Since 2011, Peter has been a regular contributor to the Everyday Sociology blog, writing posts on a wide range of contemporary topics. In his spare time, Peter enjoys cycling, swimming, and walking his greyhound, Billy. Peter, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I saved the last line of your bio to read with you here on the show. He he also (laughs) plays the drums for questionable authorities, an all-faculty punk rock cover band that has been together longer than the Beatles. Yeah, we've been rocking out in the Hudson Valley for um, for many years now, I guess about 13 or 14 years, I think. Right now, our main core is two sociologists, a <laughs> microbiologist, and a psychologist, or he's an evolutionary psychologist. And we've been playing together for, I guess, since 2000 and I think since 2003. Stephen Brookfield, yeah, I, who's been on the show before, he has a punk band, and I didn't actually think that we'd now have two guests who ha- are in <laughs> punk bands. It's just like a, wow. a fun, a fun thing. We'll have to connect you to his music and see if you like it as well. I didn't even know that because I would. Stephen Brookfield's books are some of the most influential books for my own thinking and 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 life as an educator. So mm. that's that's an interesting connection. I didn't realize that. Yeah, on one of the episodes, I actually played a little bit. I asked his permission and played a little bit, so it's fun. Well, I, I shared with you this story, but I want to share with the listeners how we got connected. You sure. followed me on Twitter, and as I often do, I will go and look at a person's profile and then just see if I think that they will be providing me with something you know, of value in terms of my own feed. And I ran into my friend the other day. She was talking about she had gotten off Twitter. She said for her own mental health reasons, she, she thought like if that was number one on her list to talk to her therapist about, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, the, the, probably it was time Twitter. to sign off for a little bit. But she said, oh, you've you know curated really well where it's bringing you a lot of life. And of course, it brings me a lot of 
not good parts too, but it brings me not good parts of things that I really should be more aware of. So anyway, I went and instantly was just, if I risk sounding like a scary person to you right now, I was enthralled with you. <laughs> just sure. um, starting with your book, you have a wonderful book called Teaching with Compassion, an educator's oath to teaching from the heart. And I wonder if you would talk just for a few minutes about why did you decide to write a book about compassion and specifically about teaching from your heart? Well, I mean, this book was in the works for a long time for me, at least. I was teaching a class, or I teach a class regularly called Social Interaction. It's a sociology class. And, you know, all my classes are a little bit alternative in how I approach them and whatnot. And so in this class, we were using a book on a Tibetan Buddhist teaching called Lojong. And Lojong is these seven points. It's seven points of training the mind. And within those seven points are 59 principles, these little pithy little slogans, like almost fortune cookie slogans. And they're all geared towards trying to be more compassionate to yourself and towards others. And I would use this book in a class in social interaction because we would spend the semester talking about many of the ways that we don't interact well or that a lot of the problems that we have societally in terms of our interactions. And yet social interaction is the foundation of our society. And if we can't interact well, then we can't have a, a strong society, we can't have a strong foundation. So I use this book in that context. And at some point it dawned on me, I thought, wow, you know, these 59 slogans, I should write a little explanation for each one about how they apply to teaching and learning. And then there would be, you know, a book about teaching and learning with compassion. Anyway, so the Lojong book didn't pan out, you know, in terms of getting a publisher, but I eventually came back to it a couple of years later, brought on my co-author Janine, and then we jumped on the idea of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors have. And we thought, hey, you know, you know, teachers should do no harm too. We should have a Hippocratic Oath. And so we created this 8-point oath. It was 10 points, and we brought it down to eight. And then we started writing the chapters. One of the things that I heard I'd love to have you share a little bit more about, and that is just the idea of the part of it that is us being kind to ourselves. And I wonder if you, you've reflected on just how are we as teachers sometimes not kind to ourselves, and therefore that blocks us being able to be as compassionate as we might otherwise be to our students. Yeah, that's a great point because the even in Lojong, there's a very famous meditation technique in Lojong that applies to me of something that we'll talk about, I'm sure, later on. But, you know, where you breathe in the pain and suffering of others mm. and then you breathe out goodness and equanimity, goodness and balance to them. But in the Lojong book, it says you have to begin this practice with yourself first. Mm. You have to be able to breathe in you know, your own pain and suffering and breathe out goodness and equanimity to yourself. So I think your point is, is, is really a point well taken and something we take seriously in the book. I mean, we have a section in the book about self-compassion. We, we cite Kristen Neff, the social psychologist at the University of Texas at Austin, who's written a lot about self-compassion, recognizing that teaching's hard. And the, the worlds that we teach in and the students that we teach and, you know, all of these aspects that we engage in as educators, is, it's really difficult. And if we're not going to be compassionate to ourselves, we're really not going to be in the right frame of mind to be able to offer compassion to our students. 
You know, I mean, we talk a lot in the book about having the beginner's mind, like, you know, don't be an expert mm-hmm. and don't think you know everything, but you also have to situate yourself to have the compassionate mind for yourself, you know, like not that you have to get rid of all the pain and suffering that you're experiencing, but at least do some practices or do some reflective exercises so that you're able to take care of your own needs before you necessarily try to save the world of of all your students. So it's really important. I'm glad you brought that up. One of the quotes from a past episode, it's been a long time actually, is from Kevin Gannon. And uh-huh. he's a historian. I only know him from Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say that because even though I f- I would consider Kevin a friend now, my mind first has a, a map of knowledge that starts with him being the tattooed professor, and then I can get right. myself to Kevin Gannon. So because I I also know him so well from Twitter, but he talked about students are not our adversaries, and you said in when you were describing your book, who wouldn't want a book like that? And I imagine that probably someone wouldn't want a book like that if they have just built up these walls over time of trying to self-protection. One of the big ways I talk about my own teaching changing is I used to take things personally, like a student texting in class or a student, you know, not quote unquote paying attention, which I now know the difference between civil attention and, and true attention, although I think there's probably a better word for true attention, but uh, I haven't gotten there yet in my vocabulary. But just I used to take those things as a personal affront. Or even with plagiarism, James Lang, when he came on early back in episode 19, talking about his book, Cheating Lessons, the same thing with plagiarism, like, you, you cheated on me, like, this is somehow about me. And now it just feels so much more freeing and so much more peaceful to get over myself and realize that I'm actually not as big in my students' lives as I might have used to like to think of myself. And that feels really freeing. Not that I don't yearn to be some small part of us all being more present for each other in this world. And I do really feel that these digital devices can sometimes really prevent us from the real authentic raw connections we can have with other human beings. But yet it doesn't have to be about me. <laughs> it can be about way, uh, way more complexity than that. And then a, a recognition that I can build that community not out of control and anger, but build it through a sense of invitation, inviting them to be a part of some interactions that they haven't had before. So I'm wondering if you ever had similar shifts in your own thinking about your teaching? Or have you always been (laughs) able to to teach with compassion without having any of that anger or taking things personally? Well, I don't know if I would go that far. But I mean, I, my own teaching came out of the earliest focus for me was Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Mm -hmm. And that's basically been the foundation for my teaching. So you know, not seeing students as antithetical to me or not seeing students as, you know, trying to break down the, the, con- the student-teacher contradiction. I mean, that was something I was trying to do from the very, very beginning. Yeah. So I, I guess I feel like I never really approached students ad- as adversaries because I, and again, this sort of gets to my, what we'll talk about later, but I mean, I just absolutely love being in the classroom. Yeah, I love engaging in the process of exploring ideas, thinking critically, challenging ourselves. And I just see that as, as a cooperative endeavor. I mean, I don't go into the classroom to be mean or, or to, be, to be a jerk. And I tell that to students. I say, look, I'm here because I want to learn with you. And I've said this from the, be- I think from the very beginning of when I first started teaching, because that's why I went into 
you know, mm-hmm. to try to get my PhD because I wanted to be an educator like that. And, you know, I'm not there to, to make their lives difficult. I mean, I want to challenge them. I want them to think critically. I want them to learn how to write and, and how to speak. But that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy each other's company in the process. We don't have to love each other. We don't have to agree with each other. Like there's a chapter in my book called Emphasize Classroom Chemistry. I mean, I, I still struggle with that. You know, for 20 years, I've been in the classroom, at least at New Paltz. In every classroom, you have to figure out the chemical equation differently, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a challenge, but it's a challenge that I kind of relish and, and one that I miss right now. But, you know, again, just, just very quickly going back to the beginning of the book, th- there was also an article I wrote because it's funny you mentioned Kevin Gagnon mentioned the students are not our adversaries. I wrote an article, which I, the title I wanted for the article was Students Don't Suck. <laughs> and I think I shopped it around to yeah. maybe a few places, but the one I ended up using was much more yucky, but it, still the article is still, I think, a good article. It's called A Zero-Sum Game of Denigrating Students. And the article actually started out with maybe like five or six quotes that I gathered from my colleagues that sort of suggested that students suck, Mm. you know, like really these denigrating comments. And then I kind of make these three different arguments about why it's problematic to denigrate students. And, and one of them is very similar to the one you said about cheating, you know, like why are students cheating? And well, you know, like why are we creating classrooms and, and educational structures that would encourage them to cheat? Right. I mean, they don't have any stake in the game. So of course they're going to cheat, you know? So anyway, it's, it's mm-hmm. looking at sort of the bigger issue as, as, as sociologists are wont to do. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about how I first found you on Twitter and the, I mean, right in the header of your Twitter is teaching with compassion. So I, you know, quickly went to Amazon, read the description and, and then I came back and I already knew, in fact, I maybe even already clicked follow to follow you, but then I came to the tweet that's at the very top of your Twitter. It's um, I don't know if you're on Twitter right now because I'd rather you read your words than me. <laughs> but um, oh, are you, are um, you on I can Twitter? go on it, yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. So this is sure. um, Peter's pinned tweet at the top of Twitter. Yeah, it says there's no easy way to process and share information like this. So I did what I'm often most comfortable doing. I wrote about it. I hope you will take the time to read this essay. And then the essay is titled, A Sociology of My Death. And would you mind just reading the first little bit of the article just so people get a sense of what you share? Yeah, so it's called A Sociology of My Death. I'm dying. I don't mean this figuratively, like I'm dying of thirst or dying to visit Hawaii. I mean it quite literally. I have incurable stage four lung cancer. I was diagnosed in June 2017, a few months after my 50th birthday. My only symptom was a nagging dry cough, but by the time the disease was detected, the cancer had metastasized throughout my body. Since then, I've had numerous treatments and interventions. Some of these worked quite well, allowing me to resume most of my normal activities. Others were not as effective, resulting in adverse side effects, extreme discomfort, and in one instance, a week-long stay in the hospital. My current treatment plan showed great initial promise, but now, after just a few weeks, the tumor started growing again. For me to have lung cancer, indeed any form of cancer, is the epitome of a tragic irony. I've never smoked or tried illegal drugs, and I've never even been drunk. I've pursued clean living, good nutrition, and regular exercise, 
in part to avoid the sort of medical misfortune that I am now experiencing. As a kid, I played sports all day long. At 16, I swore off junk food. At 18, I became a vegetarian. In my 20s, I ran marathons and did triathlons. And in my 30s and 40s, when my aching knees no longer let me run, I swam or biked most days. About six months before my diagnosis, I completed a one-day workout that simulated two-thirds of an Ironman triathlon, swimming 2.4 miles, then biking 120 miles with 5,000 feet of climbing. A few weeks later, I recorded my fastest one-mile swim time ever. I was incredibly healthy until I wasn't. So it's a beautiful post, and you go through and talk about so many of your len- your lenses as a sociologist and how this has impacted your work. I wonder if you could talk first about how it's impacted your teaching and and I know you had some real crucial decisions to make as to whether to share with your students last semester. And I wonder if you talk just a little bit about your decisions specifically around teaching and disclosure or not to your students. Yeah, I, you know, I haven't, I didn't really think much about that until that question popped up on Twitter in anticipation of this event that I'm doing on campus next week, where somebody's going to interview me about living with a terminal illness, an event that I actually kind of proposed and planned. And so I did some crowdsourcing, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> on Twitter to ask people what are some teachable moment type of questions that could be asked. And one came up about disclosing to students. And and I hadn't thought much about that for a while, maybe because I'm not teaching right now. But when I was teaching last, like, so last fall, I got my diagnosis in the summer of 2017. In the fall of 2017, I only taught one class both because I was kind of shell-shocked from what just happened to my life, just got turned upside down. And I just wasn't sure of, of you know, physically or, or, you know, where I was going to be at. So I, I taught one class and my university allows me to do reassigned work for the other two classes. And my plan was to walk into that class and tell the students right away to be completely honest and upfront. And it didn't, it didn't happen. I mean, I, I walked in there and, and I just didn't say anything. We went around the room. We, you know, I do these exercises to, to create the classroom chemistry. And I just, you know, I told a different story about myself. And then in the spring, I taught three classes. I was feeling a lot better. One of the medications I was taking was working well, at least for part of the semester. And so I was back to teaching three classes. And, you know, I was totally back in my groove. I, you know, I felt the flow of what I was doing, unlike a little bit in the first semester where I was still not totally there. And I didn't tell anybody again either. You know, and when my colleagues were covering my classes, I told them, please don't tell the students. They don't know. In the middle of that semester in February, I got, I got news back that the cancer started growing again. And that was in February. And so, you know, I had to miss some classes. You know, I was getting some, some radiology treatments. I was, you know, going down to New York City for, tre- you know, for different things. And so I had to have my class covered. And honestly, I don't even know what my colleagues told the students, but they didn't tell them what was going on with me. And students, you know, they didn't know. When I wrote that essay, you know, I knew that essay was going to sort of be my coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no, there's not an easy way to do this. I mean, I, I, I felt like, you know, I mean, I, I have a public presence on the campus and I just, I guess I felt like eventually people had to know. Students had to know, and and you know, I guess the irony is people know now, but I'm not on campus. Mm-hmm. As I, I mean, I'm on campus. I'm, I'll be there in, in an hour or two, but I'm not. 
you know, I'm not teaching. And the only reason why I'm not teaching, I mean, I was scheduled to teach three classes this semester, but I ended up in the hospital in the summer. And I just thought, you know, at that point, the second medicine that I was taking stopped working. And at that point, it was just a lot of uncertainty. So I just didn't know what, you know, where I'd be back in the fall or not. Um, so I thought it's just out of respect to my colleagues to let those classes get covered now. And for the students, of course, then start the semester and not be able to finish it. So yeah, I mean, I, the thing about telling people or not telling people, I guess I would say that's kind of an organic process, as it has to be. What have been some of the reactions from your, in this case, they would be past students? Yeah, so I, I posted this on Facebook, the essay, again, as a way for me to come out. So I posted it on my personal page, which I do have some former students that I'm friends with. And then we have a sociology page. And the reaction was nothing what I expected. I mean, I, I was just, I, I felt like I was, maybe I was naive, but it was the most, not that I didn't expect this. I just, it was the most beautiful outpouring of support and appreciation. And it was just, it was so beautiful, you know, and, and I guess the part that I didn't expect was it felt like I was being eulogized. Mm -hmm. and, so what sorts of feelings did that evoke for you? Well, it, it was interesting because, so the essay came out on September 14th. The week of September 14th was a horrible week for me. You know, it was just in terms of the, the, the you know, medically, I was just in really bad shape. So this essay comes out, I get this tremendous outpouring of support and appreciation, not just from students on Facebook, but even on Twitter, like people from around the world talking about this essay. You know, I, I honestly read that essay at least 30 times that week. And the reason why I reread it 30 times was every time somebody would write something, I'd be like, how did they see this in the essay? Or where did they get this from? Or, you know, I just, I felt like I wrote it in my head. And then I didn't realize that readers read it in their head. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge realization for me. I'm, I felt kind of naive, hmm. you know, and that, and even more specifically that I wrote it in kind of an intellectual head and people read it in a deeply emotional head that just created very different reactions, not bad reactions, you know, but just different. And, and that was, that was illuminating for me. So the reactions to the essay were sort of intellectually fulfilling for me at the time, but incredibly emotionally sustaining at a time when I really needed them because I was just in such bad shape that week. And I have to say, you know, both my parents are alive, thank goodness, and they've been tremendous supports to me. For my parents to be able to read these things that mm -hmm. students wrote about mm -hmm. me and how much of an impact I had in their lives and, you know, and just the stuff that you, you would expect or want to hear from your students about how much they appreciate you. And my parents got to read that. And that was just huge for me, for them to be able to read that stuff. I mean, my, you know, they, I gave them access to my Facebook account and, mm -hmm. and everything so they could see all that stuff. And I think for them, dealing with their incredibly healthy son going through this ordeal, that was just a, a, an unexpected gift. One of the things, and I, I believe you wrote about this on Twitter, but I'm, I apologize if I don't have my source correct, but you talked a little bit this is my word of attention, because you, you, you were describing so powerfully about the sense of leaving a legacy, but 
then I just, and again, I love your use of the word reading it in our own head. So I'm reading this in my own head. And I just, it was so retching and powerful for me to read. You said, no, I want to be teaching right now. I don't, like, I don't want to leave a legacy. I want to be in that classroom teaching yeah. right now. And and yet, as I hear you even talking today, and as I go back and reread the post and reflect on it more, I do have a sense like you're leaving us with a legacy. I mean, that that doc, just documenting that as an educator, I felt this is a sociologist teaching me about death and the process that we as a society are good at that and then also not so good at that. Yeah. <laughs> and I was sitting with my, my younger brother. I have an older brother and a younger brother. I was sitting with my younger brother one night and we were sort of talking about some of these issues. And I was saying something to him to that effect. And he said, he started to laugh to me. He said, well, you know, when you're dead, you're, you're not going to be able to decide mm. what people think. And I recognize that. And I've been meaning to write that I think that was a Twitter feed that I purposely wrote just as a way to get things down on paper and hoping that I would return to it. And, you know, I mean, I have actually a file for it to write an essay about that, that I've started it a bunch of times. But I realize that people are going to remember me in any way that they want and hopefully a positive way. And I don't want to sound, you know, like I don't want to sound ingracious, but I don't want that right now. I want to be in the classroom. You know, I just, I love being in the moment and I don't teach, you know, so I can get the applause or I don't teach so I can get these beautiful <laughs> eulogies when I'm still alive. And that's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's hard for me to be on campus right now. And I walk around campus, I just see students. I talk to my colleagues, like, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm a part of this contemplative group where we meet once every two weeks and do, you know, meditation and stuff. And, and we shared this poem and somebody's like, oh, this is a great poem. I'm going to bring it to my class right after, you know, which was meeting right after our, our contemplative group. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't have a class right now. Like I can't, mm-hmm. I can't do something like that. And sure, you know, I, I even th- thought about this today because it's the fall here in, in, in New York. And I always for years and years in my intro to sociology class, I give the students this E.E. E. Cummings poem or these three of them. There's this beautiful one called A Leaf Falls. And that's. <laughs> That's like what the poem is. It's just, and it's written in such a way that it looks like a leaf falling. And and one of the students on Facebook, in response to my essay, said, "Every time I see a leaf fall, I think of that class that I, you know, only class I took with you was intro, and I think of that poem. And and every time I see a leaf fall, I think of that poem. So that's a great memory, and that's a great legacy. But but I want to be doing that." with students right now it's fall Mm -hmm. and this is a perfect time to read that poem and to go outside and and to experience it and so that's what i was sort of trying to articulate in that in that post the leaves are still falling (laughs) yeah well they they always fall right they just keep falling i took a class in my undergrad that's one of my most memorable called sociology of death Mm. and it was so memorable the professor had a man come in whose son had been killed in a car accident Wow, and he described many people's reactions to to him and his own grief as translating into wanting to fix him. Mm. And there's the whole religious aspect of trying to fix someone. You know, don't feel bad; they're with God now, which is you know ever so comforting to someone religious or not, right. <laughs> super comforting, sure. and all about just how other people's grief 
makes us uncomfortable. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what your experience has been like. You've shared about that some on the post and also on Twitter, but just not not certainly, I know that it's not your nature to do it out of a angry place, but to do it really from an educator standpoint so that we might better be able to hold other people who are walking a similar path as you. That's a huge question. And I'm sure we'll, I, you know, I expect to talk about that question next Tuesday night, but that that is, that's a, that's a burning question. Like, okay, so, so great, Peter, we, we know your story. So what do you want us, how do you want us to, to deal with you? You know, how do you want us to interact with you? And what I would say to people is two things. One is, you know, there's not a one size fits all approach, right? So, okay. So that's the first thing we have to understand. So then my approach and can I just preface it by saying, <laughs> I don't have a lot of knowledge about this issue, mm-hmm. right? I've never studied death and dying, right? That's not my area of sociological expertise. I just unfortunately have stumbled into this position and now I'm gaining wisdom about it, mm. right? And after this interview, I'm going to have more wisdom. And after the interview on Tuesday, I'm going to have more wisdom and I'm going to keep having more wisdom. And so we should come back and keep learning more from me because I'll just know more and more, <laughs> of course, until the, my last breath. That's when I'll know the most. Right. So I don't I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert on any of these issues. And so in terms of how people deal with it, I, I would I would go back to my sociological lens and maybe that's just me intellectualizing it. But I would say treat people like they're a human being. And then the question is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be human? And I'd say, yeah, exactly. I think we've lost a good understanding of what it means to treat each other like humans. I think I wrote a Twitter post a little bit about this because I was saying, I wrote an essay years ago on how to be learning to become human from my dog. <laughs> I missed right? that one. I'm going to have to go find that one. <laughs> yeah. So you know, when I walk my dog, I cannot walk my dog down a sidewalk and it could not see another living being on the same sidewalk and at least be attentive to it. You were mm. using the, you, you, you talked about attention before. It would give attention to that. But as human beings, I, I walk on sidewalks because I do a ton of walking. I walk my dog, I walk to school. I walk on sidewalks lots of times when people walk past me and they don't even acknowledge my existence. And I would say in my situation, what I'm dealing with with terminal illness and anyone else, you know, treat someone like a human being, acknowledge their existence, right? Like a dog, sniff them out. Do they want you to hug them? Do they want you to ask them a question? Do they want you to engage with them? Would they rather retreat? If you at least acknowledge their existence, you can scratch the surface of some of that and then start going in. But if you just avoid them like they don't exist, that to me is not being human. But take baby steps. At least start, engage them as a human being, You know, acknowledge their presence, and maybe even take a risk, acknowledge the pain and suffering that they might be experiencing. When Rebecca Hogue was on talking about her experience with cancer, she had just a slightly different word choice that I found to be more comfortable to to use, although I didn't use it with you today. When we got on the line, you said, how are you? And I responded with, you know, the sociologically correct thing to do, which uh-huh. is how are you? And uh, she she suggested that in her case, it was helpful if people said, how are you today? Because mm. how are you is just for her, it was just too big of a question and, sure. and also could seem inauthentic. You know, we just, right. how are you? Fine. How are you? That's, you know, but how are you today was a question that she felt like she could more authentically answer going right. through treatments, et right. cetera. Yeah. And that little bit of specificity means a lot to her, but to the rest of us, you know, we might not understand why that would matter. 
Yeah. And like you said before, I mean, it's certainly we don't have the five points to make this all perfect and that it's clumsy. And Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is, you know, let's recognize and call out the elephant in the room and, you know, allow it to be clumsy and acknowledge that we don't have the answers, but we're at least willing to have a conversation about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think this relates back to classroom stuff. Like we don't have to have all the answers in the classroom, but we can engage in a dialogue to try to get to the point where we might have the questions, you know? I have two colleagues at school who both lost their spouses in the last year or so. And one of them I see pretty regularly. And I really treasure that relationship because it gets to the point where every single time I see her, that is not all encompassing of right. who she is in my mind. And yet there's the safety and I, I just love every chance that she has t- with me to get teary eyed about her husband and share a story. I just, I think, Oh, thank you that, that I get to share that with her and that she feels comfortable enough. And I, I just love that. And it's a contrast with the other person who I also consider a dear friend. I just don't see that much. And so every mm-hmm. time I see him, I just feel the still, I, I wish that there were, were a way to translate it into just seeing him enough that that doesn't have to be so encompassing, you know, and, and I still, I mean, right. I, I've, I've bite my tongue. I don't say that to him and I don't, because <laughs> of course, another thing that is not about me, <laughs> but, but um, I guess that, I guess I just wanted to share those experiences only to say that if you press on through it, if you, if you lean into that discomfort, there's a beautiful place where you can get together where yeah. you, you offer that person, a, I think a beautiful gift to be their whole self, not that because the diagnosis or in that, in their case, that that death was, is just, one part is a big part, but just one part of who they are. Right. But I, you know, I, I just want to say the points you make, I think are just really important for us to keep in mind that, and I always tell students this, that there's a lot of problems in the world. I mean, we, we talk about this as sociologists, there's a lot of big problems and it could be really discouraging and overwhelming and, but we have to work within our sphere of influence you know, like work within the world that you can work in. And, and for you, it could be these two colleagues and, you know, like really giving the attention to these two colleagues. And, and then you spread that out to maybe people in your community, you know, but I think we have to recognize the need to start small. And I think this, again, gets to this question of like, how do we treat people like me and how do we deal with terminal illness? And we'll, we're not going to create new societal structures Right. I mean, like like institutional structures, you know, that, that could be in place to try to have a better way of dealing with either terminal illness or, or even aging. Right. The way, you know, but that's not going to change in a radical, quick way. But we could certainly work within our sphere of influence. You know, we could work within our families, within our coworkers, within our communities, and we could create different social arrangements, social relations, you know, different opportunities, different webs of connection that might ameliorate or assuage some of these problems that people experience, you know, issues of loneliness, issues of grief, issues of stigma, you know, whatever they might be, things germane to what I maybe am dealing with to some extent now all of a sudden. It seems like a perfect transition into us talking about our recommendations for the episode. And my recommendation is everyone should go read your post. And specifically to what you were just saying, Peter, is, um, I mean, literally, I could go through every paragraph and say, oh, my gosh, I mean, it's just, it's just a wonderfully written post. But specifically, I haven't even skimmed the surface of what you shared about inequality. 
And there's some really important points that you make there, including some links to some information to you're even citing your sources in your in your own blog post. And so I, I think that it's certainly worth a read for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think people should read your post and, and you know, take some away some thoughts about how to, to just put those little small changes into having conversations with our students. I mean, <laughs> you only have to open up a couple conversations with students before you realize they're dealing with a lot of the same things. And yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. It reminds me of that Margaret Mead quote, the famous Margaret Mead quote is, never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Yeah. Um, this is the point where I get to invite you to give your recommendations. My recommendation is, I just stumbled upon this yesterday, and then I guess I got your email about the recommendation. And, um, <laughs> the very last and I already, minute. I, I sort of already mentioned it in the in the podcast today, but Far and away, the most influential book for me has been The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. And, and I didn't realize that the book is now out in its 50th anniversary edition. Apparently, it came out in 1968 in Brazil. So it's it's now out. There's a brand new 50th anniversary edition, I think, published by Bloomsbury Academic. I feel like that book certainly helped me become both the educator that I am today and I think it also helped me become the person that I am today. Not just that book, but then other other writings from Freire and dealing with issues of inequality, dealing with issues of dehumanization. And Freire even writes about love. And so I think a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about in the interview, you know, the idea of students as adversaries, the idea of inequality that you just brought up, but even, you know, a lot of what I wrote in that essay. I think, as I talked about at the end, sort of just came out of my own intellectual trajectory and pedagogy of the oppressed is about much larger things. And I would, I would definitely put that as my recommendation. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for your work as a teacher. And um, you've already taught me so much. And I think I've known you for like 12 days, <laughs> known you. <laughs> I can just imagine the impact you've had on your students and your colleagues and um yeah, just thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it, and hopefully I can provide some from usefulness for your listeners. I'm always learning so much through teaching in higher ed, and today's episode is no different with Peter. I'm so grateful for him to coming on the show. And I thought I would end today's episode by reading A Leaf Falls by E.E. E. Cummings. And so I went to look it up, and it turns out that it's not really... <laughs> going to be very helpful for me to try to read it to you, other than to say I'd suggest you go look it up too, because according to Wikipedia, A Leaf Falls is a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. It's the first poem in his 1958 collection, 95 Poems. It's arranged vertically in groups of one to five letters. When the text is laid out horizontally, it either reads as one you have to see, but it's a combination of loneliness and a leaf falls. In other words, a leaf falls inserted between the first two letters of loneliness. In analyzing the poem, Robert Diani notes that the image of a single falling leaf is a common symbol for loneliness, and that this sense of loneliness is enhanced by the structure of the poem. He writes that the fragmentation of the words, quote, illustrates visually the separation that is the primary cause of loneliness. And I am grateful to Peter for helping us be less separate 
from those that we care about who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness or are otherwise experiencing some form of grief in their lives. Thank you so much, Peter. And thanks to all of you for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode, please feel free to go to the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 230. And you can make a comment. And if you'd like to not have to remember to go to the show notes to get the links to all the great things that Peter shared today, you can always subscribe to the weekly newsletter. And that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That'll get you the show notes to the most recent episode and also a blog written by me about either teaching or productivity. And we've got some great guests coming up. Just because we're getting to some holidays coming up does not mean that episodes stop coming from Teaching in Higher Ed. So I hope you'll keep listening and tell your friends about the show. And um, make sure that you give a rating or a review if you've been listening for a while and haven't had a chance to do that. Thanks for so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.